All right, this is John Reed. I'm now live with Brian Solis, who's overcome some technical difficulties. Welcome, Brian. Hey, thank you so much. How are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Now, the, the origins of this are kind of funny because, Brian, you actually sent me a – I'm not going to say a spam, but I was on your email blast list about your book. <laughs> now, in your in your defense, you, you, you said this is the first time in several years you had done that. Um, and uh, so I pinged you back, and I was like, you know, Brian, great, but – you know, honestly, if we can't do something more one-on-one, then it probably wouldn't work. And you're right back. And you said, well, let's do this. And so I give you credit, man. You, you stepped up from the automated email send and here we are. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Th- thanks. Oh boy. Well, yeah, the, I tried to be as transparent as possible. I've, I have this, this, this list I've built of some great people over the years and I, I never use it. Um, but you know, this was a big, this was a big moment in my life. And so thanks, thanks yeah. for giving me a shot and, and replying. And, uh, here we well, are. Well, it's a good lesson, right? Instead of clicking on subscribe, you try to engage with the person and it turns out it works, right? So maybe, maybe we should rethink our assumptions a little bit on that. Um, and this, this actually isn't your first book either. You, you're a prolific guy. Um, but, but tell us about this latest book, uh, uh, tell us the title. It's about experience design, but just tell us about why you decided this was an important thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. You think that I would be smart enough and have a copy in front of me, but, uh, oh well. Yeah, wave it for the camera, Brian. We'll, uh, might, we'll, I'll, we'll I'll take a step it. away. I gotta have something somewhere. Uh, I'm my own worst marketer, I guess. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book is called X, the experience uh, when business meets design. And, uh, the whole idea was, I mean, it's my seventh book, but I, it's also my, I'd like to think of it as my first book to, um, bring about a new genre of what I felt books could mean in, in a digital economy. And, and, you know, the book's about experience design and the importance of, uh, experience, engagement through experiences and the emotions that those generate, uh, with customers, with employees, uh, so I thought, hey, you know, isn't it a bit ironic for me to tell you that you need to change, you need to create great experiences uh, for a new generation, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to give it to you in a regular old book. Uh, right. So I felt like I would read my own book, uh, take my own advice, and uh, hence that's why one of the main reasons why this book took three and a half years to produce. Right. And in fact, I was actually going through the reviews on on Amazon, and one of the things that uh, you know, I went looking for some negative reviews. I honestly, Brian, I can't find a negative review of your book yet. Um, you have, you have about 40 reviews, um, so far. So that's, that's actually not bad. Usually you can find at least one bitter reader by then. Um, but there were a couple of people who I think there was one negative review that was really more about the look of the book. And it looks to me like you, you took some chances with the printing and the, the styles. So you essentially wanted the book to be. Somewhat of an experience, I guess you could say. Is that is that the idea? Yeah. Hey, curious though. I know exactly which comment you're talking about. Did you uh, did you see the the reply I gave to him? Oh uh, no, I didn't look at your reply. What did you say? Well, so he, his complaint was that, and I'll explain the the context of this so that those uh, following along will, will understand why. But uh, his complaint was that the paper, the saturation of this, a four color book, the saturation yeah. of the color in his book created uh, a wave. Uh, on his pages rather than just being nice and flat. There were, the pages were wavy. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I told him straight up that that is a, that's a printing issue and it, that's a, that was a bad copy. And yeah. I personally, uh, offered to send him a, one of my own stash because they're, they're, for the yeah. most part, they're, they're about 95% of what I, I really set out to, de- to design. But 
every now and then you're going to get a, a, a bad apple. Oh, yeah, 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 barrel. totally. And, and I think what was interesting was that was really the thing that's provoked the most opinions on the reviews is, you know, people had strong opinions one way or the other about about the look of the book. But that's interesting because most books don't really do that. And so I guess that's sort of what you were talking about. I mean, one thing that I was struck by, I mean, you're, I'm sure you're the same way, but I I have a little bit of resistance to some of the experience uh, buzzwords and lingo. One of the reasons for that is, I read a book on the experience economy that influenced my thinking a long, long time ago. You probably remember that book. Yeah, Joe Pine. Yeah, and and I remember at the time that was a fundamental business book for me, and it was really more – it made me think about how I interacted with people, and and I sort of made a vow to try to sort of give people experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, of course, as more of an independent consultant and publisher and whatever, it's a lot easier for me to do that, right? <laughs> Um, doing it at scale is a whole nother matter. And, and so I guess that's the thing is like, well, why, why are we starting to pick up momentum on this now? Because honestly, we've been, sort of been trying to deal with this for a long time. And you had a stat in your book on this. You cite a Bain and Company study of 362 companies. 80% of those companies thought they were delivering a so-called superior experience. But in truth, only 8% of them were. So that's a good starting point. Give us your thoughts. Well, yeah, so the, the problem was, and this is one of the reasons, I mean, this book was challenging on many fronts, right? Not just the design, but the idea that the word experience means so many things to so many people. Uh, and that is part of the challenge, right? If you ask somebody in customer service or customer support what the word experience means versus uh, advertising, design, creative, UX, web, what have you, mobile, everybody has a different answer to it. But right. it's, it's all very micro in terms of their perspective and not that that's a bad thing, right? That's just the way businesses are designed to focus on their, their fiefdoms and excel as best they can. But the word experience, it's, it's, it's the word that's actually, you can't debate what it means. Uh, and, and the, the biggest aspect of what it means to me is not just in words, but also how it feels, right? Or how it looks or how it smells or, um, all of the aspects around the senses. Uh, and when you look at experiences in that regard, you can take a step back and look at, well, in every moment of truth throughout the customer journey or the customer life cycle, there are these experiences that just happen, right? They're, they're emotional reactions to a moment, uh, and they all add up to something. The thing about that something is we sort of don't know what that is, right? We have sort of irrelevant or off-base metrics to sort of say, hey, does this customer really like us? Are we in alignment with our brand promise? Right. But more so, it's just left a chance. So what if what if brands and businesses actually thought about what the experience people should have in every one of those moments and then what it should add up to? If you created this sort of architecture for experiences, then the whole infrastructure of businesses and how it executes that at the product, service, design level, could actually be something a little bit more meaningful. So I don't think that businesses or executives for, per that stat actually go out and say, Hey, we, we don't care about customers at all, or we don't care about customer experience. I just don't think they know what it is, right? They don't live the brand the way that their customers do. They don't go through life the way that their customers are changing. Uh, and they have this sort of legacy perspective and how they're watching the future unfold that is, is, is rooted in, in cognitive bias. So with that said, I think taking a step back and looking at what experience could be, 
and and bringing it to life at an ex- at an emotional level, at a sensory level, uh, it almost becomes uh, the new foundation for brand, product vision, aspiration, engagement, relationships, uh, and it, it really changes how your company would work together to make that happen. Right. And, and just to be clear, you're, you're kind of putting a few different buzzwords in a blender here to try to help us make sense of this because you're, you're basically taking what you call BX or brand experience, combining, combining it with UX, user experience, and CX, customer experience. And I kind of think I know what you're getting at there because if, if I have a really good user experience on your website, but I have a crappy experience in your call center, then the overall experience has, has, has broken down. Um, so you're trying to sort of, weave together these various pursuits that brands have been involved with is is that where you're coming from there yeah exactly so the the, the challenge is is that i i um there's so experience is a buzzword uh, there's a ton of buzzwords around this space and i was trying to get to the heart of the matter like let's have a tangible conversation about possibilities to elevate uh brand relationships customer relationships so the the aspect of brand experience which is one of the big trends user experience which is a, a an underappreciated uh, methodology and approach, in my opinion, and customer experience, which is all the rage right now. The one thing that they all share is the letter X, right, which just stands for experience. So my point was just drop all the individual efforts, bring them all together, and work towards something that's both, yeah, that you could look at at a higher level, but also start to be practical about it in, in everyday right. engagement uh, in every facet of the business. So there's no reason why none of these groups should should collaborate. Uh, and, and one of the main reasons why I think UX is underappreciated is that a lot of the, the disciplines behind UX um, and people and empathetic design uh, should should be blown out of proportion from just a website perspective and, and get into the C-suite to look at human beings from a human-centered design uh, angle in order to develop things that are relevant, that matter, that are, are a lot, you know, that you can create alignment around. And that's, you know, it, it, to some extent or to great extent what Joe Pine, um, and, uh, and his, his co-author, uh, it's, I can't remember his first name, Gilmore, uh, were getting at, uh, in the experience economy back in the day, uh, was looking at things beyond products, right? And if you look right. at that connected customers, younger customers, uh, they don't want products. They want experiences. So that means that how you approach them, how you engage them is not unlike what we're starting to see with the Ubers of the world or the Tinders of the world. They're turning yeah. simple transactions into full-blown experiences. And once they taste it, they do not want to go back to doing business as usual, right? So they start to mm-hmm. judge every company. So think about now what that means to your insurance industry, what that means to your bank, uh, what that means to your shopping, uh, your groceries. All of these things now are going to start to emulate this innovation and disruption that's taking place on these new fronts because they're experiential, not transactional. Right. And getting back to that survey information uh, from Bain and Company, uh, only 80% of of those companies surveyed, according to their customers, were delivering a so-called superior experience. So what's what's the secret of those 8% as you perceive it? Uh, it you know, it's it's intentional. Right. 
the whole idea of experience is that it has to be driven by a purpose. So what, what do I, what do I want to do? What do I mm-hmm. want to, uh, how do, what, what impact do I want to have? What's the experience that people have today and how do I want to improve it? So those are all intentional. And when you're intentional about it, that means that you have to do things differently in order to execute, right? And to measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of the companies, I study a lot of this, uh, the, the book X is, is, the result of a lot of research I've done around digital transformation uh, and innovation. And those are probably overused words too, but uh, they are what they are. But what I had learned inside of that research was that uh, companies are changing uh, specifically because they're recognizing that the new customer and the new employee, and by new, I don't just mean kids, millennials, what have you. I just mean anybody who lives an active digital lifestyle uh, they just expect things differently. They're, they, they, they think differently. They, their values evolve over time. And so trying to pursue that is, uh, I call it the undercover boss moment. It's that, it's that show where, um, even though it has the same ending every episode, there's that gift of empathy that happens when the executive sees the world through the eyes of his customer or her, her employees and says something like, I forgot what it was like. Right. Uh, and then they change and they promise to change and then it's intentional. So how you change how people work, who works together, what the roles are, uh, is all now driven by this very human empathetic purpose. And that's why that 8% I think is succeeding where, where others aren't. And it's just simply because they're looking at new ways to compete. The only thing I would sort of take issue with, and I'm not sure if you're saying this exactly, but a lot to me of these companies that are held up as these pioneers and experience are really just doing a great job a lot of times with, with an app, like, like the Starbucks mobile app, for example, has gotten all kinds of praise and, and, uh, I've actually enjoyed using it, but I've had issues, uh, with, with things like topping up money and some credit card related issues and the call center and tech resolution stuff was hell. You know? <laughs> and, and so, and so for me, it's like some of these app darlings get exposed. Uh, once you get into the customer resolution side of things. Oh, yeah. Well, I have this quote. I, I, I don't think it made it into the book, or maybe it did. It said, I, I love calling customer service, said no one ever. Uh, yeah. the, the challenge is, is that, you know, you have a company like Starbucks that's incredibly innovative on its technology front, on, especially in its its retail experience. Uh, you, it's because you have sort of a new infrastructure of uh, what essentially is a chief digital officer, chief marketing officer, and a CIO all working together for this sort of rapid uh, prototyping and uh, iteration, innovation, experimentation, et cetera. But what you still don't have, and this is what digital transformation is all about, is this sort of evolution into the entire experience, the entire journey sort of being stitched together uh, right. through, through one common vision and through one common purpose and to one common standard, right? So this is, I guarantee you that at, 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 at a near point in the future, Starbucks will have that nailed probably far before anyone else. But, you know, you're taking 40, 50 years of, of philosophical approaches to customer engagement uh, right. and having to reel it back in. And in that philosophy started with outsourcing to scale, to save money, to improve efficiencies and optimization, et cetera. But with that came a whole bunch of bullshit metrics, a whole bunch of uh, horrible experiences, a lot of reluctant customer relationships, uh, and executives didn't care because there was this standard that everybody in the industry just sort of agreed to that this is what we're going to do. 
someone yeah. comes along and starts doing it better and lo and behold you get a taste for it and now it, it creates sort of this 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 rolling momentum brian when we talk about about uh customer experience a lot of times certain companies come to mind that we always wheel out as cutting edge in your research have you found any that surprised you that there were companies that were maybe more conventional brick and mortar or just companies where you wouldn't expect how much great work they've done on this issue? Well, you know, one of, one of the examples, I, I, I tell the examples of companies like Telstra that mm-hmm. really approached customer experiences or just experiences from uh, retail innovation. So uh, they, they reimagined what a store could be more, so, mo- so much more than actually Apple uh, did, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Uh, but they also, they also felt the pain of the customer going through the call center uh, uh, and also online. So they tried to really connect the dots between retail online and call center so that so you could at least have that as a consistent experience and they're still doing a lot of work around the rest of the journey uh you have companies like sephora that uh with bridget dolan who decided to go through the experience through the shoes and eyes of her customer uh to see what it was like rather than looking at the customer journey as it is and seeing where to remove friction and to bolt new things onto it she found real great opportunities to bring disparate groups together to to create something much more integrated and valuable. So much so in in her work that she now spearheads the new innovation center that was open in San Francisco to further get in front of digital customers to to really understand the technologies that they're using and have a rapid um, implementation uh, program to test them out. So you have really cool s- stories happening here and there. Uh, and what I'm trying to do with, with ex- the book X was introduce what I hope is, is a, a series of real pragmatic, I mean, they're still challenging, but pragmatic steps to just build a new infrastructure one step at a time for the business of the future to say, look, right. it's not enough to compete at products. We've all figured that out. We've all got 60 years of, of fine tuned business models that are now starting to decay. And that's why an app can come out of nowhere be worth tens of billions of dollars, dominate industries around the world simply because they're catering to just the human aspect of the customer. Uh, and I think it's, it's just, it's weird that we sort of lost that over the years, but it's, it's coming back and it's coming back with a vengeance. If I put my curmudgeon hat on, which I do sometimes, uh, <laughs> I, I would say that I would say that the danger you're running into is, is attempting to boil the ocean. And, and by that, I mean, uh, like I just did a, I'm running up a use case right now from a customer. It's a very interesting story about some digital transformation they did with customer advocacy. And, um, I see a lot of these examples, but a lot of times it's sort of a departmental example of a company moving ahead with a really great mobile app or a great new initiative. And what you're asking customers to do is to tie all that together somehow. And like you said, from an architectural and cultural standpoint, there's a lot there. Is this, do you think it's possible to do this? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely possible. It's not only just possible, it's necessary. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll tell you this. Uh, I do a lot of research with Google uh, around what, what they call micro moments. And I, and I talk about this in the book. I, I'm trying to create a sense of urgency, but also not telling you to boil the ocean, uh, you know, giving you sort of cups <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or pools, if you will. Okay. You want to start me with a, a smaller <laughs> piece of sand, right? Yeah. I just okay. give you areas where you can have an impact. Okay. Uh, and, and where we learned, 
um, where there's one great opportunity for impact is in micro moments. So the, the mobile customer is, 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 uh, completely upsetting the, the customer journey because they're fragmenting it. They're coming in and out of it. They're doing things their way. And the stat that I think blows people away is that 90% of mobile customers, uh, will go into that journey without having a brand affinity. They'll go into it completely brand agnostic and they're looking for, uh, information based on context and intent. So I want to learn, I want to do, I want to go, I want to buy. Uh, and so they're very specific, right? And so now you have to almost rethink, well, now that I know that the experience is going to unfold this way, what would I do about it? Uh, and it gives you a real nice opportunity to, um, well, essentially to experiment and to, well, more importantly, to learn. But this is why the right. book really focuses on the, the customer aspect of change, because there's so many opportunities to start small and go big there. But you could take the same approach that's in the book and apply it to employee engagement, right? Because the same dynamics mm-hmm. that are causing disruption in, in customer markets, you know, this, they don't want to work the way that, you know, two, three generations before them have worked with technology and, and the standards to which they're measured for success or, you know, the whole idea of trying to solve the future of work with open spaces. I mean, this is, there's, there are psychological and sociological aspects to this that require human resources to actually become human, to rethink what employee engagement and, uh, and management means, right? And what success even looks like to them and what happiness uh, looks like to them. It's just all very different. So yeah, eventually the ocean will be boiled, but it's never going to stop. I mean, it's just going to continue to evolve. Yeah. When, when I think about, about this from more of a historical perspective, I, I think back to the nineties where companies that wanted to do this, I think, I think even if they culturally, they were ready, I don't think the technology was really there to do it. Right. And I think you're totally right about mobile because mobile makes these things possible. And it also exposes the issues in the, in the process, right? Because now suddenly you're carrying this experience around with you. And that really makes it harder for companies than if you're just checking their website once a week, you know? Right. Um, I was recently trying to get home from, uh, Europe and I was changing planes in Toronto. Long story. And, uh, I nearly ended up spending the night in the Toronto airport. And the reason I didn't was because of TripIt Pro, because I got a alert that my plane had been canceled. And I was like, that's very interesting. Cause I'm sitting in customs. I'm like, that's a fairly useful piece of information. So I walk up to my airline service counter and not to name names, but Air Canada. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and you know, they were like, Oh, we don't know. I don't think that flight's been canceled. Let me check. And they check on their computer. Oh yeah. That flight has been canceled. Um, and, you know, long story short, they, they took care of me and they did a nice job and they got me on the only possible flight and whatever. Wow. Uh, running, running through the airport, you know, whatever, you, you know, the usual thing. So I'm sitting here, I'm thinking like, well, what prevented Air Canada from, from providing me with that type of thing? Because without TripIt Pro, like I would have been screwed. And I'm thinking that, that there's a lot of issues around siloed data and, you know, and, and, and real time information and, so, so I think the technology is there, but I don't know that the data is integrated properly in a way that allows real time actions. Hmm. Well, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, but, but what you're also getting at is the fact that none of, none of the data and the processes, right, do not connect. And that's part of the challenge, right? So 
customer customer support on the back end versus CRM versus frontline. Uh, they don't, they don't talk to one another and, and the, and the data that they do have is slow and archaic. I mean, have you looked at their screens? I mean, it's unbelievable. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so of course, all of this costs money and it, it, it takes training, uh, and, and in many ways, new expertise. But I mean, look, right now we've, the airlines especially, but same with, uh, cable industries, telephone companies, uh, they all force upon customers reluctant relationships, right? right. I mean, this, and this is a problem until something new comes along, right? And it becomes a runaway success. There's no real sense of urgency. So what I try to do with, with X is I'm a hopeless optimist, right? I understand that I'm not going to yeah. be able to sit in front of any executive and say, Hey, man, you know, your back end sucks. As a customer, this is horrible. You know, because they're still making money and, and they, they live in a world where they're having to report to quarter to quarter shareholders, stakeholders, what have you. Right. So lo and behold, the customer's still giving us money. We must be doing something right. Let's just try to find opportunities to improve what we can. You know, I know what we'll do. We'll come up with an app. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I think though is that as a, as an optimist, I see the opportunity uh, to show where they can seize opportunities where they are not today, right? How to, how right. to grow markets, how to reach new customers. Um, because otherwise they're going to, there's just going to be something that comes along, uh, even for the airline industry that's going to cater to people in very interesting ways. So I'll give you an example of this, right? So, uh, Capital One about a year or two ago acquired a UX, the, probably one of the premier UX shops, certainly one of the first called Adaptive Path. And the headlines read everywhere. Uh, why did, why did a bank acquire a UX firm? I think right. they acquired a UX firm, uh, because my research shows that if you look at highly connected customers, same with micro moments, they do not view the bank the way you and I looked at a bank, right? They don't think about credit cards the way you and I think about credit cards. They think about these things as experiences the way that they look at Uber as not a car service, but as a way of just sort of facilitating a lifestyle choice or making you, know, you and I having lunch together and Uber is going to make that possible. That's, that's about it. So you think about UX's role in that it's understanding people. It's, it's coming at this from an empathetic view. And when you apply it with human centered design, chances are you would, you would think of the bank or the idea of a bank much differently, right? Whereas sure. today, we look at it as, well, let's improve this. Let's change this. Let's, you know, have uh, some screens for people to use. Let's offer free Wi-Fi. But that's iteration versus innovation. Yeah, and and I I've always said to the customer experience gurus who claim that customers are in control, I always feel like that's almost always in direct proportion to how monopolistic that industry is, right? So, you know, in, in the taxi world, I have a lot of control right now. You know, I have a numerous apps I can summon a ride with, you know, um, but I don't get the feeling that Facebook cares about me. And I know Google doesn't because I've tried to email them. You know, so <laughs> so I think now now Facebook can try to bake some of that into their design and try to anticipate my problems. But but otherwise, you know, I don't really get that from them. And the the one thing that I think is really interesting, though, Brian, and I know we have to wrap shortly, but. I wanted to ask you a little bit about segmenting customers by desirability or profitability because I, I, I went into my Slack back channel and asked some of my friends about <laughs> my experience with travel because I thought, you know, maybe I'll rip out a post on this. And someone said, well, a lot of it has to do with your status with the airline. It's like, 
and the person said they have status with Delta. And so they're getting great experiences like that from them. Right. And, and I said, well, that really surprises me. But I said, on the other hand, the words John Reed status of Delta have never been used in the same sentence before. So that's <laughs> probably part of my problem. So, so is this the kind of thing where you think this is going to help all customers have a better experience or are companies, are you advising companies more to focus on certain desirable segments and start there? Look, there's no doubt that desirable segments are, uh, you, you can't ignore them. They're, they're, they're amongst, you know, your most valuable in many ways, in many different ways, uh, valuable customers for, for consistency standpoint, right? You sort of need that core, but at the same time, you can't completely screw everybody else over either. Right. And I, th- I think that this is a learning uh, curve for a lot of executives because the way that they measure success today is much different than what I'm asking them to look at. Uh, because it's, if you can actually solve for better experiences for people and let people understand that it's not, it's not just the airline, right? It's every facet of the airport that contributes to the experience, even though Delta is not responsible for, you know, TSA, it right. still sucks to get from that into that airport through security to the gate, uh, there's factors that you aren't in control of, but you have to be empathetic for, right? Just look right. at the, look at the face of any ticket agency or, or, or any flight attendant. I right? just, many of them are just unhappy. So looking at just from any matter of ways, right? Do you really need to squeeze another couple inches, you know, to, so that somebody's right. knees are in their neck? You know, maybe these are areas that we have to start to explore to deliver smaller, better experiences so that we cater to people differently, but everybody feels like they're being heard and, and they're, and they're being listened to or they're being smiled at. And those are the little things that start to count, right? Because everybody what's not going to change. And this is the core point is that your customers are becoming much more narcissistic. They are in control of their own experience. They're not just in control. It's not the customer is always right. Just in control of their own experiences. So they will go to do anything and say, they will go anywhere, say anything as long as they're heard in their, what I call the ego system, right? So if airlines or any industry does not cater to the accidental narcissist, they are going to find themselves slowly losing relevance. And that doesn't play out overnight. It just plays out over time. And that's, you just open the door to disruption. Well, Brian, I hope you're right. Uh, I wish we could keep talking, but I've talked to you over your hard stop. For folks uh, watching and listening, Brian was a super good sport. This is totally unscripted, and he's put up with my cynical <laughs> jabs and is teasing about his email. Um, Brian, is there any uh, closing thoughts that you wanted to cover that we didn't get a chance to? No, just that the, the you know, there's a lot of UX, UI, and and human centered design that went into the books design uh, that I'd love for you to check out. You know, just building a book. That wasn't just beautiful, but building it from scratch to be relevant after studying how people use phones and how they retain information, how they learn. So I, I, I drank my own Kool-Aid to see what I could come up with as well. And it took a long time. It was very challenging, but uh, I hope you like it. I hope it helps you. Well, as someone who has more books trapped inside me than I've, than I've gotten out into the world, I, I admire the accomplishment. Hope it works out for you. And good luck rallying these companies around this because it would be better for all of us if this works. So <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot, Brian. I- I appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. Yeah, definitely. Cheers.